Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The markets are going to be a big part of the conversation today, as is a fantastic piece of reporting from our colleagues over at Bloomberg Businessweek. A special shout out to Jordan Robertson and Michael Riley as they reveal how China used the smallest of chips in a hack that infiltrated some of the biggest companies in America. The attack by Chinese spies reaching almost 30 U.S. companies by compromising America's technology supply chain. This all according to extensive interviews with government and corporate sources. And I'm pleased to say, Tom Keane, we're going to be talking about this a little bit later in the program. So really looking forward to doing that a little bit later right here on Bloomberg Surveillance. To get to the price action and what's happening in markets, I'm also pleased to say that joining us here in New York is Tobias Lefkovich, Citigroup Global Markets Chief U.S. Equity Strategist. Good morning to you, Tobias. Good morning. How are you? Let's start with those yields. 10 years, 30 years, all breaking out. What does it mean for the equity market? So look, we've been worried about this environment for a while. The economy's strong enough. Wage pressures are starting to grow and probably will grow even further based on some of our analysis. So this was kind of almost in the cards. However, um, how much flexibility is there in the equity market to handle this? And our sense is that you've had a range on equity risk premiums since the global financial crisis of four to seven percentage points, right? We are about 4.4% right now. So you have flexibility to get you to kind of about three and a half percent offset by less risk premium because you believe the economy is growing. Beyond 3.5% starts becoming more challenging on the 10-year yield. Um, and I think that's where the pressure starts to evolve on, on, on valuation. The chairman of the Federal Reserve out with, I think, a really important comment in the last 24 hours that he thinks we're a long way away from hitting the neutral rate at the Fed. What do you think of that, Tobias? So, look, I, I wonder how much, and again, I'm, I'm trying to get into the, the motive behind saying that, how much of that is moral suasion trying to prevent um, the yield curve going flatter and inverting? Yep. And how, how much is that kind of Fed speak to, to force some steepening in the curve? I, I don't know his motive. I don't know if that is what he wanted to imply. But the Fed historically has been able to utilize its language to kind of get its way in the market. And if it didn't, then it can go into the market and actually use its toolbox and you know, crowbar kind of force the outcome. Yeah. Do you care what Indian rupees doing? I mean, <laughs> I know Citigroup's, you know, got branches in, in, in Bombay and you're selling toasters and all that. But I, I, I mean, day after day, John and I are watching EM blow up in, you know, different ways and different forms. And it seems like we're just rationalizing the revenue stream of Amazon or Apple or the other magic stocks. Doesn't a guy like you care about the knock-on effects to EM? We have to worry about it. I mean, one of the things that we watch, for example, is the dollar relative to the performance of U.S. markets versus EM. And, and what do you and see it's, it's very tight over like 25, 30 years. So anytime the dollar goes up, you tend to see outflows from emerging markets. Um, and it puts meaningful pressure, not just on the currencies, but on the economies as well, as that foreign direct investment kind of leaves in a often bumpy and, and erratic way. So do, do I care about the rupee personally? Maybe if I'm planning a trip to the Taj Mahal. Um, do we worry about it from um, economic knock-on effects to the U.S.? 
it's fairly small for U.S. equity markets. It's horrible if you're sitting in, in the emerging markets equity world. Tobias, when you look at U.S. markets in a vacuum, and what I mean by that is just focusing on domestic issues, America looks great. The ADP report yesterday was solid. The non-manufacturing ISM was fantastic, and it looks like we're set up for a decent payrolls report as well. In a vacuum, things look great. When you look at things internationally, you just wonder how U.S. markets are holding up so well, Tobias. <laughs> so so I've, I'm getting a lot of those questions, actually, like, why is the U.S. doing so yeah. well? So, so one is the economy, where we, you know, keep in mind, probably 75% of the S&P 500 revenues are U.S. driven. If it's, if it's for example, Asian sales of, of semiconductors, it really isn't. Those are products that are coming back here in the form of smartphones, tablets, computers, servers, et cetera, some apparently with yeah. rice-like uh, uh, espionage units on them. But the, the, the economy itself is fine. Right. That's one thing. Number two, technology in particular, which is 25% of the weight of the S&P 500, um, is phenomenal in terms of demand. And then lastly, we have massive buyback activity. So that's that's kind of keeping the U.S. separate from the rest of the right. world in terms of equities. Can we do a surveillance clarification, not a correction? Can do whatever Chris like. from New Jersey emails in and says, did Tobias mean the old Trump Taj Mahal that is now the Hard Rock Cafe in Atlantic City? I haven't been to Atlantic City in many, many years. I don't think that's what Tobias meant. Exactly. I want to go. I want to get meant. back there. Okay, I just lose money at Chris, the table. Chris from exactly. New Jersey emailed. I'm not sure he needs to worry about the rupee if he wants to go to New Jersey, Tom. Well, you Chris, never know. Chris, uh, Chris actually has been replaced. Just keep that in mind in New Jersey. That's why I had time to email. Oh, oh gotcha. I, I think it was a different Chris. That's my guess, but I, I don't gamble. But I, I don't not. understand. The, I, I literally do not understand the appeal of gambling. I really don't. Well, we're not going to talk oh, about well, gambling. Let's, no, let's we're not going to talk no, about gambling. We know we're not doing People that. People think what you do is gambling. I mean, come on. So let me it's give you. Me, so we're I, so far off the can mean I, right can now. Can I give you two very important statistical Please data do points? Tobias. Okay. Um, so nearly 78% of the time, if you buy equities, the S&P 500, you will be up a year later if you look back over 50, 60 years. It's not Las Vegas, okay. is it? If you go to a casino, there is a 56% probability that you will lose money. Okay, then how do you respond to the Dow chart I have from 2007 that five of the 33 or 30 Dow stocks, rather, have outperformed Amazon, Visa, Nike and there's two others I can't remember right now. GE on the bottom clearly, but I, but, I use the S and P 500. But, but if you don't fine. gamble and get those five stocks, you don't get alpha, do you? But if you bought the index, the Dow Jones index, you would have been fine. If you're trying to, I think for most individuals trying to pick that wonderful stock that's going to make you ten times your money, you're you're probably going to lose because that probably that, that's starts called the Pharaoh approach. <laughs> you know, don't, I, I don't always joke around. Down I, with you. I, I, I own a few penny stocks. They just didn't start out that way. Um, so all of us will make a mistake buying stocks. Yeah. But but yes. if you're buying stocks in aggregate, it's it's a winning combination over time. The, the, the statistics are pretty. Can powerful. I just say thank you? For so many things, but thank you for joining us this morning. Tobias Lefkowitz, Citigroup Global Markets, Chief U.S. Can you see that we're both wearing black over here? You are troubled today, aren't you? Both of us were watching Leafs Canadians last night. Can we just, Opening say, night, can we just say go Yankees? I had a moment of about, silence. Why are we talking about that? Why are because we talking about the in the real world, Leafs Canadians really matters. In, certainly in Canada, it matters. And when Toronto beats Montreal, it really hurts us Montrealers. It yeah, really Toronto hurts. looks so good, John. Okay. Toronto is so, so stacked. John Farrow and Tom Keane, and in terms of the diplomacy and the international relations of our Bloomberg Businessweek effort on spying by China, 
by elements of the People's Liberation Army by placing microchips on server boards that ended up being used by 30 American corporations and illusions, of course, over to our defense and intelligence establishment. It is good to speak to the 11th United States Ambassador to China, the gentleman from Montana, Max Baucus. Ambassador Baucus, wonderful to have you with us uh, today. Many in government have known about these efforts by China for years. Bloomberg now publishes the history of this from 2014 and definitely 2015. Bring us to the present right now. Is cyber attack spying, whatever you want to call it, from China, is it a growing issue or is it a stable issue? It's a growing issue. Um, It's probably one of the biggest issues we have. During the time I served um, in China, um, I pressed the government as hard as I could to try to admit that there may even be a distinction between um, uh, spying for security purposes and spying for commercial purposes. I couldn't even get them to agree to that. Finally, we got the goods on them when we were um, able to document that the, one of their major companies, ZTE, was, um, yes. was uh, transferring technology against uh, an anti-proliferation statute. And that's akin to what they've been doing. We also, during the OPR investigation, found that uh, they stole about 50, 50 million records of U.S. Uh, citizens. And we had the goods on them, and they didn't admit it, of course, but they did agree that uh, we started to sanction them, that they would uh, agree to a security agreement with, with, with us, and which was uh, as five parts to it, namely to um, to uh, to good uh, to uh, to, uh, to First, admit that okay, we're spying, let's do something about it. Right. Within this, Ambassador, is the idea of what should be our approach. Things move slowly in the legislative body of America. Do we have time to go through a slow American process to protect our cyber technology, or do we, do we have to speed things up? We're going to have to speed things up. I, I think this is the... The biggest problem we have, not just with China, but frankly, the world, that is we are behind the eight ball, we Americans. Um, it's just technology is growing so quickly. And uh, it's going to uh, reach a point where com- countries are going to have to realize that they, we've got to somehow reach some kind of agreement. Otherwise, this is going to be the Wild West. Ambassador, I think we've got some problems with the line, so yeah. we'll have to um, apologize to Ambassador bear. Max There's a grizzly Bacchus, bear stepping on the U.S. ambassador to China and former uh, senator from Montana. Some great, technical great difficulties. To, great to get him with us this morning, though. It was an important interview, and you could hear the heat there in the in the history that, that Ambassador Bacchus was directly involved in with ZTE, and ZTE yeah. is brought up in the story is sort of iteration one, and now this is iteration two. So I think traditionally when we think about cyber protection – and cyber warfare. We're thinking about the software, Tom. And what's interesting about Bloomberg's reporting today and the reporting from our colleagues at Business Week is this is about the hardware. And of course, um, as everyone listening knows, a lot of this hardware is made in China. So what can you do to protect well, that was my the next country question. out of national security exactly, John, you nailed if it. the hardware is made in China. Okay, but you nailed the luxury, and I mentioned this on television, and Kenneth Rogoff of Harvard, 10 years out front on this. We're addicted to the capitalism, to the price theory of cheap stuff from China, whether it's, uh, you know, bow ties or, or whatever. Well, guess what? Some of this stuff is important. It involves espionage and that. And my question to the ambassador was going to be, 
okay, if we don't make it in China, where do we make it in America? Which is President Trump's theme. And you hear a thundering yeah. silence on and if, that. And if the hardware is compromised, what can you do, Tom? You're going to check every single iPhone that's produced out of China? You're going to check every single chip that is produced out of China? Yeah, I want to make clear that within the reporting and in speaking with Jordan Robertson, that this is not about consumer goods and iPhones. He no, made no, adamant no, no. That's, that this that's, wasn't. That's, and I'm certainly not trying to infer that that's what this is about. What I'm saying, Tom, is that much of the hardware is produced there. So how on earth yeah. do you have some kind of cyber protection scheme well, initiative policy that protects you from what has happened and what our reporting reveals. And, and again, as Max Bach has said there, we've negotiated and gotten nowhere. And so you really wonder where it goes. And I, I would suggest that all Democrats um, <clears throat> would give a victory lap to the president for at least identifying the urgency and immediacy with, sec with uh, Secretary Ross. Uh, about this. Well, I, I think mean, it, I just, it makes you know. it very public. It makes it very public, and it comes out yeah. on a day that we're <clears throat> expecting Vice President Mike Pence to come I'm out glad you mentioned and, and lay yeah. out allegations of Chinese election meddling in, yeah. in a harshly worded speech that we're expecting later today um, down in Washington, Tom. So look out for that. One of our most popular guests over the years, Louise Yamada, joins us now from Louise Yamada Technical Research. Louise, I'm just going to cut to the chase. You look at consolidation and distribution, the minute price changes that are seen in point-and-figure charting. Can you be long equities today? We are growing much more cautious. I think I would be taking money off the table in the groups and stocks that are underperforming and that are showing monthly momentum sell signals, and we have more and more. Give so us an example of those sectors. Does it include banking? Okay, yeah, it does include the financials. Utilities, of course, REITs, materials, industrials, flirting with <clears throat> um, the sell signal, financials, and staples at this moment. And we have to see how the new consumer discretionary and the communications right. groups evolve because what S&P did was not start them new with the um, with the new stock. The new sectors, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, they've, uh, they've okay. merged them and changed the devices. Louise, but we'll see over time. And, and folks, I think all of you know that I'm in fully on board with point-and-figure charting going back to 1880 and the idea of no time function on the x-axis. Louise, what everybody wants to know is can you use traditional technical analysis to benefit on a buy-hold-sell basis with modern stocks like Apple Computer and particularly with Amazon? Of course. Yeah, you mean the, the point-and-figure chart? What do of they course. say then? Okay, you can use them. What do they say right now? Well, the, uh, the Apple is continuing in an uptrend just the way it is on a bar chart. They're, you know, they, they have similarities, and Amazon as well. So you, you, uh, you're going to hold those right now. Can you acquire new shares of Apple and Amazon, and particularly with the idea that the market's so underweight Apple that they gotta, they got to level up by the end of the year? Well, the stock's been doing incredibly well. I mean, if you have no positions, I, I think you could probably nibble a little, but things are getting quite extended. And given the fact that we're starting to see some underlying, um, starting to see over the past month, this year, we've been seeing negative divergences in new highs, new lows, and volume momentum in stocks above the 200-day moving averages, which now for the New York Stock Exchange has broken below 50% and is a clear warning 
uh, for the overall market. So, right. And the divergences have been going on for several years. So we're getting closer and closer. Right. What, what would happen next, which would concern us, would be uh, monthly momentum sell signals on our indices. The European indices are all on monthly sales. Most of the Asian that we follow right. are, with the exception of Japan and India. Luis Yamada, in the last 24 hours, has been amazing split between large cap and small cap with small cap john correct me small cap south right small cap moving south yeah over what, the last what do you of weeks, mean yeah. this is right in the heart of luis yamada's research note how do you parse small mid and large cap well the small and the mid are starting to roll over they've been underperforming but now the uh, prices are actually starting to roll over while the dow and the s p have been inching higher we still have upward potential in the Dow and the S&P, but uh, I think one has to be growingly cautious and watching one's port- individual stocks in the portfolios because a lot of individual stocks are on sell signals also. Louise, talk to me about the sell signals you see abroad and the fact that you don't see that trend in the United States and how unique that uh, difference is. Well, you've got sell signals on the FTSE, the CAC, the DAX, the uh, Italian market, Spain, and Switzerland. Uh, so there, there clearly has been pattern of distribution in those countries. Whether or not they can grip at some point and turn up is, is questionable with those monthly sell signals yeah. in place. But the U.S. is still in the lead. And, uh, of course, the interest rate perspective is also intriguing if you're interested right. in covering that. Well, we, no, we, do, we cover, in, come on, Louise, I we know, cover interest rates a little bit. Do yeah. we have a true breakout on 10-year or 30-year, or are absolutely. they within the Yamada no. range? Absolutely breakout. We've, we've been suggesting that okay. a little tick above three for the 10-year was a breakout. You have eight to 10-year right. basing that's taken place in these uh in these um, treasuries, also for the two-year. Yeah. And we know that uh, reversals from falling rate cycles to rising rate cycles take time because they've all experienced deflationary pressures. Historically, it's been two to right. 14 years. And here we are, eight to 10 years, and I think it's a very valid change. We're now in a new rising rate cycle. So, Louise, I want to ask you about this because so many people have a different level. Um, they plot the 30-year bull market in treasuries and they try and identify the point where we have a real breakout, where the bull market is over. Do you have that point in mind, and how far through it are we? It was 3%. 3% has been the, the uh, threshold for the 30 and for the 10, and you're clearly through it. I think you have our report from this month, and there's a very interesting study showing that we've okay. now put in the first okay. lower, lower in price, higher, low in right. yield. And that signifies to us the point okay. at which the trend has changed. John, we got to be careful because Luis Yamada will hang up on us. If that's the case, and if you take, and you're going to love this, John, if you take a three-box horizontal count and you get to some high yield of Luis Yamada, do yields finally compete with dividends? Forget about Luis Yamada. Luis, if you're a fundamental person, is higher yields finally going to compete with dividend and the assumption of dividend growth? Well, I certainly think at this point that a conservative investor could move into a a, yeah. a, ten, a two-year note, if not a one-year bill, 
where you're getting 2.5. I mean, compare that to some of the yields and then think about whether or not your stock right. is having difficulties. I would right. rather move to the safety of a short end. You don't want to go long end when you're moving into a rising interest rate cycle. You don't want the 10-year. You don't want the 30-year because if you go with a one-year or a two-year and they come due, right. you can roll that money into the right. higher yield at that point in time. Right. 10 seconds, Louise Yamada. Thumb up on gold or down? Down. Okay. There you go. Neutral, Louise Yamada. Neutral best, but down. Okay. Neutral best, but down. Now, that's fair. Louise Yamada, thank you so much. Louise Yamada, technical service. We're really just a, bril- we, a, we, a brilliant no. We protect the copyright, John, of our notes. But she's like old school, like the old you yeah. know trends. Distribution. She met, said an eight-year base in the ten-year yield. Really is interesting looks perspective on rates. Um, we yeah. spend the whole day talking about fundamentals. It's nice. To Legend at Citigroup. John Farrow and Tom Keane from our studios in New York. We say good morning, 99.1 FM Washington, where Jordan Robertson is taking a victory lap with Michael Riley. He is an author of a forever changing article on cyber attacks, America and our naivete of the Chinese. Jordan, there's about eight ways to go here. John Farrow has three or four of them's own. I want to focus on one thing. You have a pregnant sentence early in your Business Week article where you basically say operatives of part of the People's Liberation Army. The PLA to me is in a museum display up at the Met in 1968, like Red Gardish and all that. Obviously, I'm wrong. Who are operatives of the People's Liberation Army? Sure. As, uh, yeah, as the story shows, you know, U.S. intelligence agencies have attributed this attack, this hardware modification attack, to a unit of the PLA that specializes in hardware modification. And, you know, the NSA here in the U.S., we've, we have units that do these kinds of things, too. But the difference is in China, you know, you have the manufacturing base for the, for the worldwide, you know, the global, you know, computer supply chain, computer equipment supply chain. So from what we understand, this is a, a very specialized unit of the PLA uh, that, in addition to doing Cyber, you know, having cyber capabilities, yeah. uh, you know, specializes in manipulating hardware. Uh, so the okay. cyber hardware synthesis. I mean, other than the fact that John Farrell looks a lot like Daniel Craig, I mean, it's mm-hmm. out of a Bond movie, or it's what's his name, Keanu Reeves? Did I pronounce that right? The no, guy in the Matrix. Really, but let's get past all of this and okay, get to the question. But come on, oh. it's science fiction. It is. Are these guys in uniform? Are they you so know, Jordan, geeky engineers who went were at Caltech back Jordan, in China? I want to ask you about that. Just how difficult it is to access the manufacturing process of some of these goods and at what point they infiltrated that process to get this chip into the hardware. Yeah, one of the things that we've encountered in reporting this story is people here are reporting, they say, why would you go to those lengths? And the answer is, if you're China, well, the answer is because you can. You know, if you're China and you're trying to infiltrate highly sensitive, highly secured government or corporate networks, you know, that's really the only justification for going to these lengths. I mean, just to be clear, the Chinese government has no incentive to do this for, you know, mass market consumer devices. They would get caught. uh, It wouldn't be targeted. But if you're trying to infiltrate highly sensitive, highly secured facilities, that's really the only thing that justifies okay. the time and effort to do One this. example, in Lockheed Martin, I believe is not in your reporting, correct me if I'm wrong, correct. you go to the Lockheed Martin website, and John, they've got a thing called the F-35 Lightning Du, which is a jet. So if you got a little microchip on a board at any given company, 
John, aren't you going to get the blueprints, the radar, the electronics? So we're talking about access. <clears throat> they've got the access. I'm asking. So, Jordan, they've got the access, just in terms of the story and how this plays out. What did they do with that access? Do we have any idea what they did with that access? Sure. Yeah, well, we know what they wanted to. Uh, well, I'll clarify. We know what they wanted to do with the access from some of the, the, yeah. the government sources we talked to. And the, the idea is this. You know, one of the things we encountered in this reporting is people say, well, why would you land on a commodity server? Supermicro makes ordinary blade servers, the pizza box size servers that just process data. They're commodities. Why would you want to land on those servers? And we've had intelligence folks tell us a server is actually the perfect staging area for reconnaissance, probing, uh, and, you know, and evaluating a network because because it's a commodity because nobody really looks there for a sophisticated attack they look at the high value targets like a network switch a network router the places that hackers really love to be so the idea is this is a staging area to perform reconnaissance on target networks to have kind of a stealth access point in and out you know especially if it's an internet data center like Apple and Amazon run tons and tons of traffic are being pumped through those machines every every minute of the day uh, so you can hide in that traffic and the idea is you've got a back door you've got multiple back Doors. You've got you know dozens or potentially more ways into these networks, and yeah. that's that's not an it's it's a means to an end. It's it's a staging area. It's a first stage of the attack, and the goal then is to get to more sensitive networks and to create a pathway into you know places where sensitive corporate IP is is, is stored, uh, you know, or where there are uh, you know Elemental, one of the companies in the story that that found these chips. You know, they they their equipment helps run the CIA drone program. They process, and this is on their website. They process real time drone footage for. The CIA and the Defense Department. Like, you know, if you're China, you can land on one of those servers and get any little bit of data out of them. Uh, we don't have evidence that they landed on the CIA program servers, but that is a supplier. Elemental is a supplier to that program. Yeah. That's the jackpot. That's the holy grail. If you're so, China, so so Jordan, it's worth taking the it, risk. It's a fantastic piece of reporting that I understand took you more than a year to put together. For our listeners that haven't been following this through the morning, there's some pretty strong denials by the companies right. involved. Amazon. Yep. Apple, you've been very transparent about it. You've published those denials. For our listeners that are skeptical, what do you say about the sourcing of your story and why you did publish it, even with those really strong denials? Sure. Thanks for the questions. Very good questions. Very relevant. Uh, yeah, Apple, the principal actors in our story, Apple, Amazon, Supermicro, they've all denied the reporting very strongly. Now, as journalists, as Bloomberg journalists, we take that very seriously. Uh, we've you know circled back with sources. We've recircled back with sources. We've gotten more sources. And the reason we feel comfortable publishing this story is this this is about a constellation of sources throughout the U.S. government uh, and inside those victim companies, very senior insiders in those victim companies, Amazon and Apple, uh, both, as well as across the U.S. government that corroborate this information. So we can't say right. why a company chooses to deny what the right. thinking behind it is, but you know, right. all we can do is present them with our facts, and if they choose to deny, we weigh the, you know, the preponderance of evidence, and 17 senior, highly placed sources throughout the government and these companies uh, very highly, okay. highly Incredible, highly corroborated. Jordan Robertson, regards to Michael Riley, congratulations. Just a fantastic piece. Great Superb. work by the team. Look for a cover with a finger with a little baby microchip on it. It is from China. This is Bloomberg. One of our themes today the journalism of Bloomberg Business Week of Jordan Robertson and Michael Riley and their important story of how the People's Liberation Army of China attached microchips to motherboards on servers for 30 American corporations and with all of the illusions over the Pentagon, the CIA, and our defense establishment. 
There is no one Pim Fox and I would rather speak to than Adam Siegel. He is with the Council on Foreign Relations. It's his cottage industry. The definitive book is The Hacked World Order. Adam, thrilled to have you with us on this important day. I'm sure Jordan Robertson and Michael Riley agree with me. Buried in your book, traditional war is in military jargon, primarily kinetic. The point is to kill people and blow things up, while cyber attacks are often framed as part of cyber wars by the media, you cannot hold territory. What is the territory China wants? Well, they uh, are trying to gain information for competitive advantage and for political and military advantage. And so by being in uh, hardware and software, they have gained access to all of that information. Do they have blueprints from UTX just to pick a company? Well, I, don't, I think we're, we're all going to we're going to question all of that now. Um, I mean, the, the importance of the story is that people have been talking about the vulnerability of supply chain for a long time, um, and now here is just clear evidence that it seems to be happening. So, uh, any U.S. tech company that has its supply chain in China, which is almost all of them, uh, we're going to have to seriously question if um, the Chinese have gained access to. Adam Siegel, as the author of The Hacked World Order, How Nations Fight, Trade, Maneuver, and Manipulate in the Digital Age, can you draw an analogy between the use of the Internet and the use of the high seas in previous centuries? Well, I think for both, there was a period when they were completely open uh, to piracy and theft, um, and nation-states... Uh, often used uh, privateers or pirates to pursue their goals. And uh, China has certainly taken advantage of the fact that there are no international rules for cyber um, and that you can use uh, the People's Liberation Army or the Ministry of State Security, and they can often use criminal or underground hackers and, and have plausible deniability. So we are in a similar age where uh, it has been very uh, hard to control um, and where people have thought about cyberspace as a kind of a commons like the ocean, but it's one where uh, there's a huge amount of conflict um, that uh, defines the space. You've written about how the government and the private sector need to enhance their current defenses, for example, two-factor authorization to log into different systems, also to things such as absolute secure communications. Can we ever get there? Well, it's been slow going, um, and you can see in the Bloomberg reporting um, that the private sector did cooperate in some cases uh, with the federal government uh, in helping um, unravel this um, spy trail, but in other cases um, didn't share as much information and has kind of denied the, the accusation. So there's still different incentives in place, um, and we certainly need to move faster uh, to get the two sides to work, to work better together. Adam, within the reporting uh, that Bloomberg did on this, and I'm going to assume to a pro like you, this is not new news. What exactly did the story confirm within the visibility of going back three and four years to the Obama administration and the Trump administration, the length of time of all this? To a guy like you, when you saw that article, what was new? Well, just the, uh, the fact that we now can point to a specific case a specific company and, a, and, the, and the actual chip that was yeah. doing the spying. Uh, as you said, the people in the cybersecurity community have been warning about this threat for a long time, 
but there were just no public examples. They all existed in the world of classification or intelligence briefing. So to have this out in the open is just a massive change and will really shape the discussion is a, about... Is it a good change? I mean, is, is uh, I a, think is it is. A, is, to, to get to the point, is the Pentagon having a good morning? Uh, I think they are. I think the problem is going to be for everyone is how you deal with the fallout, because as the uh, as the article rightfully raises, the question is going to be what, what's going to happen to the U.S. tech industry, because these supply chains are so dependent on China. Um, and um, there's, you know, the, the solution seems to be to remove the supply chain uh, from China, but that, that's going to be incredibly expensive, and it's not clear it's going to be technically possible. Adam Siegel, is the United States perceived as an exceptionally aggressive adversary when it comes to cyberspace? Uh, I think a number of countries certainly see that. And, you know, after the Snowden uh, revelations, the revelations of the NSA contractor, uh, Edward Snowden, you know, certain types of behaviors of the U.S. were were shown to the rest of the world. Uh, China in particular took notice of that. Um, and began to think about both um, what it how, what it could do to become more secure from the U.S. and then also, you know, put ideas in its head about what type of operations it would want, like to conduct as well. Do you believe that countries that we believe to be friendly to the United States conduct cyber defense or cyber attack efforts against the United States, both private and public? Uh, they do. Uh, I mean, if you look at the report from the Office of Counterintelligence, they name a number of close U.S. Uh, allies and friends, uh, including South Korea, France, and Israel, as conducting cyber espionage against the United States. Um, and the United States does the same, quite honestly. It, it also uh, spies on its friends. Yeah. So, so this is important. Do we have, are we putting microchips on motherboards, on servers of other countries? Do we have evidence uh, of that? Yeah, I mean, the Snowden revelations, and as the report, uh, the Bloomberg reporting notes, that the, the U.S. prefers to interdict the, the, the product along the way um, and, and insert something then. So getting a specific uh, server or motherboard, not uh, in the Chinese case of um, putting it in you know, many devices and hoping that it ends up uh, into a specific supply chain. Speak, if you can, about the U.S. Department of Defense Defense Security Service. What does the DSS do? Uh, it's to help defend uh, and respond to attacks on uh, military networks. Um, and so it, it, it is working with uh, Cyber Command and the National Security Agency um, and reaching out to the private sector, in, in particular the defense industry base, uh, to help them uh, improve their uh, security networks. Yeah. Adam, thank you so much. Just thrilled to finish out our coverage today on surveillance uh, in speaking to you. Adam Siegel, folks, is with the Council on Foreign Relations, and he has just simply built up a franchise as our director of digital and cyberspace uh, policy at CFR. And again, Pim, uh, the book, uh, uh, you know, when it came out was more than a splash, The Hacked World Order. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.